I thought I'd start with a story that I heard recently from a student who was practicing with uh, transforming the judgmental mind. And um, it was a story about when he was driving in a car with his wife. And this is somebody who described themselves as being kind of on the equanimous end of the scale. So uh, gooey, big type of emotions weren't really his M.O. He was driving in the car with his wife. His wife began to talk about some neck pain that she was experiencing and dealing with. I got the impression that it was not the first time he had heard her talk about her neck pain, (laughs) but I'm not certain of that. And you know how it is when our partners or our family members or our friends talk about that thing that they talk about. They've got 15 versions of it. Of course, we do too, but shh. Don't tell anybody. Uh, When we do these things, uh, some natural responses are to tune out a little bit, kind of shut down a little bit, to, you know, even judge a little bit, maybe. But that was not this uh, person's response in that moment. His response in that moment was that the center of gravity shifted from perhaps a usual way of being into empathy, what arose was empathy, or we could say compassion. And this great empathy for his wife's pain in her neck that she was experiencing and sharing about and trying to connect about. The empathy arose so strongly and it was you know, new in some way and maybe even startling in some way, so much so that he actually pulled the car to the side of the road and turned to his wife and said something like, you know, uh, I've never experienced empathy like this towards you know, your suffering before, towards your neck pain or whatever it was that he said. Yeah. It was a whole new way of meeting the moment, uh, the habituated moment of our relationships, right? And it's interesting because the sense that I got of his wife's reaction was that she didn't know whether to be angry that he had not experienced a lot of empathy towards her suffering in the past or touched, so touched that he had been so moved that he actually pulled the car off the road to turn and look her in the eye and meet her in the moment. And I'm sure she experienced both. Uh, I mean, I can't say her experience, but I sure would have. So this is a beautiful example of how our center of gravity can shift through these practices in ways that might appear, on one hand, quite ordinary, but are also quite extraordinary. So what I want to speak about and reflect on this evening are um, these awakened states of mind and of heart and the way that we can shift the center of gravity uh, into those places. We can both cultivate the awakened qualities of mind and heart and also experience the fruits of the awakening of beautiful qualities of mind and of heart. And I'd say that the story about the student was the fruits of the practice, which is very inspiring because in the end, uh, the awakened qualities of heart as I've said more than once, are available when we're not startled and angry and confused. They're not something we have to produce or manufacture. 
they just show up. They show their face. They shine their light on the situation. So again, these Brahma Viharas, uh, metta, or we could say loving kindness or friendliness, warm-hearted well-wishing, karuna, compassion, the caring heart that is uh, moved and responds to suffering. Mudita, or sympathetic joy, uh, most specifically joy in the happiness of others. And upeka, equanimity, which is really the heart of maturity and wisdom that realizes that the joys and the sorrows that we're experiencing individually and collectively are the experience of being human, being living a life. And we can respond with less reactivity and more wisdom and increasingly appropriate responses. So I'll start where Donald left off last night by reiterating that in terms of the journey of transforming the judgmental habits of mind, the Brahma Viharas have several functions. Uh, One, by practicing them, we create a balance so that we're not spending all of our time digging into the difficult material of those judgments, Uh, that we actually have the balance of realizing, ah, There are plenty of judgments in here that need to be seen and accepted and investigated and not taken so personally, for example. Uh, And there are also the beautiful qualities of being. And not to get too stuck with the judgments in the foreground of attention, but to move back and forth. So the judgments come to the foreground of attention, the places where we're stuck and habituated, And then the beautiful qualities of mind and heart come to the foreground, the places where we are awake and free in the moment, you know, and warm and caring. The Brahma Viharas also function as an antidote. Uh, And sometimes I I smile to myself, I think, oh, you know, uh, the Buddha was teaching long before therapy became a a buzzword or, or in some ways even a modality as we know it today, but... In some ways, the Brahma Vihara practices, we could call them replacement thought therapy. Um, Wise effort in abandoning unskillful thoughts, basically. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is one of our living foremost scholars in the Pali tradition, describes it like this. He says, Ill will meets its proper remedy in the meditation on loving kindness which banishes all traces of hatred and anger through the methodical radiation of the altruistic wish that all beings be well and happy. Oh, doesn't that sound lovely? (laughs) Sign me up for that one. Uh, But then another uh, scholar, um, Nyanipanika Tara, adds this piece, and he says, But unless the mind is well-trained... When the vehement wrath flares up, it will rarely be possible to replace that wrath immediately by thoughts of loving kindness. <laughs> so both are true. It's possible. It's available. We tap into it. And it's quite beautiful. And not easy. No, not easy. And then the third quality of of the practice of the Brahma-viharas in this context is the shifting of the center of gravity. 
that we actually shift our internal center of gravity into living in a more awakened way. There's a practice in the 12-step tradition that's called acting as if. And I always think of that when I think about shifting the center of gravity. It's not as if we still don't have problems and unresolved areas in our lives. But the practice in the 12-step tradition of acting as if uh, is not denying our humanity in any way. And it's not putting on a happy face and going, oh, I love everyone, you know, I just want to act like an awake person. It's just saying, I could shift the center of gravity in the moment and invite however much compassion or happiness or equanimity that might be available uh, that I might not be able to access if I don't shift the center of gravity and let that shine forth and live from that for a moment, for a few moments, for a day. And then this quote-unquote acting as if is no longer acting as if. It's actually just being. So the process of all four of these Brahma Viharas, whether we're in a cultivation cycle or a fruition cycle, uh, firstly involves intention, directing our minds and hearts uh, towards these qualities with the intention to allow them to be revealed and shine forth. The endless cycles of purification, where we call up a quality and its opposite arises, and we go, wait a second, I'm trying to be compassionate, and instead I just have the heart of stone, and I can't feel a darn thing, and then we start judging ourselves like we're doing it wrong. We're not doing it wrong. If our intention is sincere to open the heart, and the heart won't open, who's in charge of that? Are we really in charge of that? That's not how intention works. We direct the mind and heart, and we trust in the unfolding that um, the heart will reveal itself. In the end, the heart actually isn't I or mine. We're not in charge. But we're in relationship. And then there's the beauty of resting in the awakened quality itself when it manifests and resting and drinking it in. And that's a phrase I just love. Say to people, drink it in. Don't miss the opportunity when it's there. Just soak it into your cells. Don't be too quick to look for the next difficult moment. (laughs) It'll come. (laughs) So... I'll talk some about each of these different flavors of the awakened mind and heart and uh, you know, some practices both formally and informally in our lives that, that I find inspiring in terms of these flavors. So first we have metta, or loving kindness. And an off-quoted words of the Buddha but I'm not sure we've quoted yet this retreat. Usually what's said is that the Buddha said, if we look the whole world over, there's no one more worthy of our love and our kindness than this one here, you know, me. And I love that quote. It's so, uh, it's so affirming in a, in a personal way and, and, and such a counterbalance to the judgmental sense of self. 
But there's actually a whole other part of that quote that isn't as often quoted from the Buddha. So I'm going to read you the whole quote. Buddha actually said, I visited all quarters with my mind, so all everywhere with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Likewise, a self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves themselves will never harm another. So that's the why of, if we look the whole world over, there would be no one more worthy of our love than ourselves because self is likewise every other dear. At some point, it all comes together. If we love ourselves, there's so much more possibility for loving another. And if we treat ourselves with love, um, the line says one loves themselves will never harm another. But I think what it means is when we're living in self-love, we would never intentionally harm another. And an image that I quite love, traditional image, to illustrate loving kindness is the image of the sun. And it's perfect for this retreat. So maybe tomorrow you can just stand out in the sun on the walking path and just let it soak into you as the metaphor for loving kindness. And the image is, as the sun sheds its rays on all without distinction, so too the heart-mind of loving-kindness shines its rays on all without distinction. The sun doesn't say, everyone but not you. (laughs) It just shines. And so does the awakened heart of metta in its most mature form. The near opposite of metta, I think we mentioned, is this piece called selfish affection. So it's friendliness. And the thing I like about the kind of, traditionally it's called the near enemy, you might have heard that word, but I like near opposite better. Uh, It just feels more user-friendly. And the thing I like about the near opposite qualities of each of these awakened states of heart is that they include the awakened state of heart. They're just a near miss. You know, so we can actually celebrate the wholesome qualities that are there and just realize, oh, we just got a little out of balance, a little out of sync. Ah, I could come back. So the near opposite of metta is this selfish affection. So there's affection or friendliness, but it got a little bit self-obsessed. It got a little bit about me and my agenda with my friendliness towards you or me. That's all. And then we just come right back. Ah, and now it's more of a mature metta. The opposite will be no surprise to any of us. Uh, Anger, ill will, hatred, aversion. The mind and the heart shut down into self-protection. We can have incredible compassion towards that process, which is part of being human. I was working with a different student recently, and she was telling me a story about using metta with judgment. And food is a big issue for her in her practice. And so one evening she came home after work and she started eating in a way that habitually wasn't healthy for her. And then she noticed that she was doing it in the middle of the time while she was doing it. 
of course, what happens when we get in cycles like that, we start beating ourselves up in a big way. And she did. She really gave herself a hard time. And somewhere in the middle of her rant of self-judgment of how could I do this, I've made such a commitment to eat more skillfully to support body and mind. This thought came to her. Uh, and she does a lot of metta practice. She loves to do uh, walks every day. Her daily walk is a metta practice just out in the neighborhood. And the thought that came to her was, how can I bring kindness to this? How can I bring kindness to this? And it transformed the whole dynamic in a moment. She was still feeling slightly sick from having eaten the way that she ate. She still wasn't feeling great about herself, but all of a sudden there was enough space for the wisdom to come in, which was, oh, honey, you know, it's okay. I had a lapse of of mindfulness, and this is a strong habit, and I can stop now, and I can stop beating myself up now, and I can offer myself this kindness. Transformation in a moment. It doesn't mean that she'll never overeat again. But the likelihood of bringing that same question and that same spirit to a habitual pattern that revisits us again and again is more likely. Then there's the piece about forgiveness, which we might call a cousin in the loving-kindness practice. Uh, Traditionally, uh, it's not actually part of the Brahma Viharas. But we have these cousins because for a lot of people, forgiveness and that quality and that unfolding is very helpful and very necessary to unlock the door to the heart of metta, to the mind of metta. Uh, And so we include it. And in fact, in the monastic tradition where forgiveness is practiced regularly on the moon cycles is when the nuns and the monks recommit to their practices of basic integrity and ethical conduct, which includes acknowledging that harm has been caused on all sides. And then they recommit to living with integrity and non-harming and kindness, which is metta. So, this is from uh, Dr. Fred uh, Luskin, and he's the author of Forgive for Good. I like this quote. He says, Forgiveness does not change the past, but it changes the present. Forgiveness means that even though you are wounded, you choose to hurt and suffer less. Forgiveness is for you and no one else. You can forgive and rejoin a relationship or forgive and never speak to that person again. I like that quote because it's very inclusive. Uh, and human and real. I read that quote uh, at a recent retreat. I think actually it was at the Meta retreat this winter. And uh, somebody, a retreatant, wrote me a note with her favorite uh, definition of forgiveness, which I quite liked and I'd never heard before. So now I'm starting to share it. Her favorite definition is forgiveness, to be willing to give as before. So there's the for and the giveness. To be willing to give as before. An interesting one. And the way that I see it, uh, the intention to forgive is actually the key. Uh, in some ways, then we can just trust the process to unfold on its own in its own time. You know, and trust the integrity of the process. 
But the intention is very important. And this part of the phrase, as much as is possible in this moment, is also very key to me. Uh, Because it acknowledges in the phrase itself that it's a process. It's not a, I'm going to do this project and check it off and then I walk away. Cycle after cycle after cycle. And we never have to get it right and we never have to get it done. We just have to be willing to show up for this moment and this moment. One more piece about forgiveness. This winter I read the uh, novel, uh, The Kite Runner, which I know came out a long time ago. I'm sure some of you read it, but I just happened upon it uh, this winter. Beautiful story took place in Afghanistan uh, before what, you know, the the latest long series of wars um, that included the former Soviet Union as well as now. Uh, the United States involvement. And uh, the story was about a family and about a young man in particular and kind of his process of growing up and coming of age. And as he became a young man, his father passed away. And on his father's passing, he discovered that he had a half-brother that his father had never told him about. And in fact, he had grown up with his half-brother Uh, in the same house. But the half-brother was the child of um, one of the household helpers. And it was never acknowledged. And this young man, Amir, was filled with, you know, rage and the feeling of betrayal and not having been told the truth. And, you know, the horrible ways that he had treated his half-brother not knowing. I mean, not that we might have... treat our siblings terrible even when we know that they're our siblings, but (laughs) that was his process. Um, So a lot of pain. And at one point as he was working with this, uh, he had an epiphany. He was sitting and he started the string of judgments about his father and the situation, the same as it always happened. Uh, And then the judgments kind of fell away and he had one last thought about it and the thought was different. And here's how the thought was different. He said, then I realized something. That last thought had brought no sting with it. I love that, sting. Judgments sting. That last thought had brought no sting with it. Closing the door, I wondered if that was how forgiveness budded. Not with the fanfare of epiphany, but with pain, gathering its things, packing up, and slipping away unannounced in the middle of the night. So, of course, it looks different for all of us. Every cycle is different. So then we have karuna, or compassion, the heart vibrating or quivering to the song of suffering in ourselves, in our communities, in the world. And a traditional image that describes karuna is the image of a tree. A tree, I would say, in summer, in full canopy of leaves. The image is 
that a tree makes no distinction in the shade that it provides, so too the mature heart of compassion makes no distinction in the caring that it offers. It's like the cooling shade of compassion that's meeting the fire of suffering. The near opposite of compassion is pity, which is caring plus extra separation that says, I feel sorry for you. you know, as if they're different. You know, which on a personal level, yes, they're different. But there's a little bit extra push and it turns into pity. But the caring's there. And so we can mine it and call it out. And then that encourages the more balanced form of compassion to arise. I would say another near opposite of compassion is codependence, which is a tremendous caring uh, that actually in some ways denies the relative reality that there is a me and a you. And so I get so lost in your pain that I can't respond appropriately or clearly anymore. I've become you in a way that actually isn't healthy. The far opposites, again, anger, ill will, hatred. But one that I add to the traditional list is numbness. I think of numbness as one of the far opposites of compassion. And again, I, I, I've experienced it myself. I call it the heart of stone. Another way I've experienced it for many, many years um, when I was younger was the concrete bunker. Man, that thing was thick. It could take a nuclear blast, you know, and it wasn't going to be impacted or quiver or feel a darn thing. And the experience of that is a profound numbness. And so I think of that, and I've really learned in my own practice and encourage us all in our practice that we could bring a real caring to the numbness, the numbness itself, the pain of the numbness. A lot of times we'll think, I'm not feeling anything, so what do I do? We could care about not feeling anything. I've been doing a lot of teaching this year with Sylvia Borstein, who's one of the founding teachers here at Spirit Rock. And during the March retreat that we taught, uh, she told me a story and then shared it in a Dharma talk, which is why I know it's okay to share it, about compassion and responding with compassion. For a long period of time, Sylvia worked with a mentor to support her own practice as a student and as a teacher. And she went through a period in her life where, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a falling apart cycle where a lot of things were quote unquote going wrong. There were some problems in her family life and there were some problems in the work life and, you know, different things that we deal with, hard stuff. She went to her mentor and told him about these events. And the way that he responded this was a very long time ago this happened to her, but it touched her so much that she's used it in her own practice ever since. And what he said was, Sylvia, considering all that you are dealing with, how are you holding yourself with compassion? And what she said that she loved about that question was that there was an assumption in the question that she was holding herself with compassion. And it reminded her 
that she could hold herself with compassion and that she had have mo- had had moments of holding herself in compassion and it called forth that awakened quality so there's different ways that we can practice compassion especially with this theme of judgments i'm share with you my favorite compassion phrases and and how I practice them myself, you know, it's, it's vulnerable, but compassion is vulnerable. And so I just put a hand on my heart and a hand on the guts of things, because, man, our pain is in the guts of things, at least the way I experience it. I just say, you know, I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. But I don't just put my hands on my belly and my heart, and I don't just say those phrases. I spent years training the mind and the heart to have an early response of I care. So when I'm moving around in the world, the minute that I can catch that there's suffering in me, in you, in us, and I can recognize it, one of the very first thought responses these days is I care. Because then I can lead from caring, even if there is reactivity. That's the ground to lead from. And we can do that. We can find our own words and our own first responses to cultivate in ourselves uh, when we're meeting challenges. Another compassion practice that I want to mention that's not a formal practice, but it's one I take great heart in and especially on retreats, but I do it sometimes in daily life too. And it's the compassion practice of touching the earth. And that's why I take heart in it. I think about Siddhartha sitting under that Bodhi tree, and especially now that I have actually sat under the descendant of that Bodhi tree, comes to life in a different way. And I think about him sitting under that tree and being rocked by Mara, And whether you think of Mara as an external force or an internal force or both, I tend to think of it as both in turns, it's the challenges of being human and the way those challenges manifest mentally. So Mara threw all these arrows while he was sitting under the tree with the passionate intention to wake up to the deepest truth of things. And Mara threw the arrows of, you know, wanting and fear and not wanting and, you know, all these things. And those of us that know the story know what was the ace in the hole that, the, that Mara threw at Siddhartha. It was self-doubt. And we could even say self-judgment. So Mara said to Siddhartha, who do you think you are to be sitting under this bow tree thinking that you, of all people, are going to get enlightened? Does that not sound like a judgment to you? It does to me. And what did he do? He remembered his basic goodness. He did not believe that thought or that energy. And he put his right hand on the earth and the earth touching mudra and said, you know, the earth is my witness to countless time of sincerity and integrity and caring and effort to be free. The earth is my witness to that. May I be free. And I would encourage you to use that if it sings to you. 
as you're sitting here and you're just being trashed by the judgments, you know I mean? It's like, it's almost as if we've created this container where they can just throw everything they've got at us because here we are ready to be present with them. When that happens, you know, and it's like Mara at its best, you might want to take heart and connect with the lineage of those who have put their hands on the earth. And that is not a Buddhist thing. That is a human lineage. I think every spiritual tradition probably has a story of somebody putting their hand on the earth. I'm saying the earth is my witness to my basic goodness. And may I be free of this pattern. Period. We're not in charge of the results. But wow, it's not cheating to direct the mind. So, mudita, sympathetic joy. So, sympathetic joy says, uh, you know, basically that your joy is my joy. And in the end, it doesn't really matter what the doorway is into the joy. Uh, traditionally, it's, it's joy in the happiness of others. And what we find uh, sometimes is that we need uh, a different doorway into accessing that joy uh, so that then we can grow into wishing for happiness for others. So talk a little bit about some of the different doorways into mudita. A few images I like for mudita or sympathetic joy. Uh, The first one... I worked with young children for many years, actually as a teacher in a previous incarnation. And there was nothing I liked better than, um, you know, a child. And I worked in preschool for a while. So these four-year-olds, I love four-year-olds. That's just me. And they would run up to me. And they'd have like their little leaf or rock or something that they found. You know, just some little thing. Heather, Heather, you know, they just fill a joy. Well, and of course, they didn't even say Heather, Heather. They can't say T-H yet when they're four. They go, Heather, Heather, you know, look, look, look. And I look at this little thing that they found, and it'd just be filled with joy for them. And I'd watch their parents do the same in moments when their parents weren't feeling overwhelmed, overworked, exhausted, or otherwise, you know, annoyed, which is completely a part of the path of parenting. It's not that we did it wrong. It's just part of the path. Uh, But when they were in their fullness of heart, they just, their face would light up, my kid in their art project, you know, I think of the creativity retreat down below. I'm sure that they're experiencing mudita for each other's paintings. Isn't that amazing to see that? Another image I think of is actually sports and how we develop tremendous mudita cheering on our team. You know, it's like we don't even know these people. And we're screaming at the top of our lungs, ecstatic that they just made the goal or whatever, you know. And a more subtle example of mudita uh, is actually on the Buddha rupas or the statues of the Buddha. Often the Buddha has a slight smile on his face. And it's actually one of the interpretations of that is it's the smile of mudita uh, in his role of, you know, a smile of, of happiness for the fruits of practice in himself and in others. 
So it's important to talk about the near and far opposites with mudita because these images call it out very easily. Uh, The near opposite is exhilaration, actually, which is definitely joy and can be joy for the happiness of others. Uh, But there's a subtle disconnect. I mentioned it this morning in the guided meditation. We get a little bit too high and we actually lose mindfulness. We can't be present with the full extent of the joy because it went a little bit too big. So I definitely see that with the sports teams from time to time. (laughs) Uh, The far opposite is this quality of jealousy, which is so painful, um, especially in our our judgment uh, work. You know, the comparing mind that moves into, you know, I want what you have that I'm supposed to be happy for. Uh, there's not enough for me. If you've got it, somehow it means that I'm going to get less. You know, that uh, mentality that we fall into. You know, and the hoping that we'll get it and the fearing that we won't. The aversion and the pushing away and the clinging. And it's really all about creating separation uh, where it's I and mine and you and yours. Uh, instead of realizing that all qualities of mind and heart are actually contagious. You know, so when we're really, really angry, uh, if somebody has seeds that are about to sprout of anger, they're more likely to grow. If somebody is uh, really feeling happy, that's more likely to grow. Donald's been quoting a little bit uh, Shanti Deva, so I thought I'd bring in a Shanti Deva quote about mudita and jealousy. He said, it's kind of almost like when the right hand is praised, the left hand is jealous. So you go, oh, you're such a wonderful hand, right hand. You do so many things for me. Look at you. Now I happen to be left-handed, so this works really well for me. And the left hand's like, wait a second, I'm the primary hand. How come you're giving all this praise over here? You know, what about me? What about me? We do that when we're trying to offer and cultivate happiness for another. And what about me? And it's okay. That's just what we do when it's not, the quality's not mature. So different doorways to accessing joy. Uh, James Barras, who is another founding teacher here at Spirit Rock, loves the topic of joy. Those of you that know James know that. Uh, He's got a whole joy course, which is actually a great complement to uh, the judgment work. And in his book about joy, he tells the story of of kind of accessing joy and mudita through the doorway of self, which is part of what we were playing with in the mudita practice this morning, that sometimes we need the doorway of self uh, to cultivate joy and then let it be bigger than us. So this particular student was a a pessimist, self-defined, and He was caught in traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge, or the Richmond Bridge, one of the bridges, and got really frustrated and started judging that everything was wrong in the world. I'm sure, you know, we've never done that. Caught in traffic and, you know, everybody's in the way and how come there, you know, isn't a passing lane and why are all these people in my way when in fact we're in the way also? On and on. So he's doing the judgment dance. And then he has this thought, because he was in the joy course and he was practicing joy. He said, <laughs> he said, wait a minute, is there any joy here? 
And as soon as he asked that question, he looked and said, I saw that I could just switch channels. I looked out and saw the water in the San Francisco Bay. I looked up and it was a clear day. I opened my sunroof and said to myself, you know, it's not so bad. I realized there's a switch that I'm starting to find that I didn't know was there before. You know? And then out of that, he could connect with the rest of the traffic in the world moving with him and go, yeah, I hope everyone's experiencing this joy. You know? But he wasn't going to start there. I'm stuck in traffic. I hope everybody's experiencing joy. <laughs> you know? Then sometimes uh, we move in through the doorway of, of the other. I have a friend who does a mudita practice with her husband. And her husband has the habit of getting very excited and joyful about random small things that she does not think are any big deal at all. And so she started to notice that she was really judging him uh, for this disconnect. Uh, And so she started taking this on of, I'm going to be happy for him and his simple, ordinary joys so that I have more access to my simple, ordinary joys. So this one day he calls her and he says, and he would often call her and start the conversation with, I have the best news. <laughs> and, you know, her response was, oh, great. You know, and she'd be ready for something amazing and then it'd be, so this time he called, I have the best news. What is it, honey? Oh, well, they have these um, new type of organic vegetables at the farmer's market. I'm so excited. And she had the thought, who cares? And then she remembered her practice and she said, honey, I'm so happy for you. Are you going to get some? This is going to be great. We'll make dinner and it did like this connection and joy, you know, <laughs> instead of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Let me tell you about my day. So it's a simple practice. And then for some of us, gratitude is the doorway into mudita. Uh, James talks about some judgments, or uh, we could say even core beliefs, that are real gratitude squelchers. Oh, that's a great term he uses, gratitude squelchers. So he says two of the main ones, and these two relate to judgments, which is why I'm mentioning them, are, you know, it could be better, dot, 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 I could be better. It really squelches gratitude. It's hard to feel grateful when it could be better, and I could be better. So sometimes we make our gratitude list. And I was working with a retreatant on the March retreat who was working with a lot of self-judgment and and really uh, not having a good time with it. And so I started, uh, I actually did the exaggeration practice with her that I talked about in the last Dharma talk. And I said, well, you know, if you really can't, and, and then the judgments would expand into, I don't want to be at the retreat, basically. So she's beating herself up and then not wanting to be at the retreat. I can't imagine why, you know. <laughs> of course, you know, we're beating ourselves up. We don't want to be there. Uh, so I had her exaggerate it, and she would write me notes every day of uh, her list of how many more things had to happen before the retreat ended. You know, it is a way of bringing up joy in the mind and gratitude in the mind for what she had instead of, I can't believe there are seven more days, eight more mornings, 200 more veggies to chop. And as she kept writing the list, the gratitude and joy started to rise. So it keeps going. 
two plus more gushing cries, 22 more cups of tea, uh, 42 degree temperature of my car keys, four more hard-boiled eggs, six more banana slug sightings, eight more amorphous sunrises, seven more discreet sunsets, one more awkward laundry service, (laughs) 70 more times missing my mother, 70 more times angry at my mother, Zero more times of the thought, I'm going to leave tomorrow. Ah, gratitude had arisen you know, so that she could stay. Because the retreat was not over tomorrow when she wrote me this note. And she said I could share it. <laughs> so, Upeka, equanimity. My favorite working definition right now of equanimity The equanimity is a balance of the unruffled mind and heart that's grounded in wisdom and supports a deep caring which leads to a more appropriate response. I'll say it again. The balance of the unruffled mind and heart grounded in wisdom which supports a deep caring and an increasingly appropriate response. And my current favorite image for equanimity has nothing to do with the tradition. It's an image from a movie called The March of the Penguins. Maybe you saw it a long time ago. It's kind of a documentary movie about emperor penguins, which you know stand, I don't know, two and a half or three feet high, and it's all about their life story and their dramas and trials and tribulations and joys and successes, which is, you know, the heart of equanimity can hold all that in one heart. So I'm not saying these emperor penguins are equanimous. I'm just saying they're a great image. And the image that I like is the image of when the mother lays the egg. And what happens when the mother lays the egg, that's going to be the next generation of emperor penguins, is that um, she lays the egg and she gives it to the father penguin. And they put it on their little feet. And then their tuft of their belly goes over it to keep it warm. And the mothers walk some unbelievable distance, like 70 miles, from where they lay the eggs to get to the ocean to feed, hopefully not get devoured by a sea lion, and bring that food back for the baby who will be born by the time she gets back. The fathers, meanwhile, stand there for three months straight (laughs) without eating in a big colony, balancing so it's great equanimity, balancing the egg on their feet, covering up with the carrying of their belly. And the only thing that they do that entire time is they shuffle around so that the ones on the outside that are being buffeted by the Antarctic winds, which I can't even imagine what that's like, end up on the inside. And everyone takes turns being on the inside and being more warm and safe and protected. The baby is born, the mothers come back, and the fathers walk 70 miles after fasting for three months. Hopefully don't get eaten by a sea lion, get food, and come back. Okay, that's equanimity. There's a lot of unknowns there. There's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of things could go wrong, and they do. You know, It's not like a happy ending story. Some of them get eaten by the sea lion. And some of the eggs don't make it. And the egg is our heart. And we're balancing it here on our little feet and covering it up with the tuft of caring. You know, it's actually a a whole different way of uh, 
relating to our bodies metaphorically, you know. It's like, oh, our bodies as uh, part of the equanimity practice. We can have that sense of balance in the body, of groundedness, of the physical expression of caring and feeling it in the body. The opposite, near opposite, is indifference, which is equanimity minus the caring. Or, yeah, it's equanimity minus the caring. So a lot of people think, oh, equanimity, it means passive, right? Not at all. Not at all. That's more the near enemy, indifference. Equanimity minus the caring. And the far opposite is attachment, which gets over-involved in the situation and then can't have the appropriate response because we're too involved. And only we can know what too involved is in any given situation. So I'll, we'll be uh, playing with the equanimity practice in a guided meditation coming up. But for now, I'll just mention some of the phrases for equanimity. There are traditional ones uh, and non-traditional ones. The traditional ones acknowledge that uh, we are heir to our actions. They acknowledge cause and effect, the law of cause and effect. Cause and effect. Uh, so they might go um, something like, you know, you, you are the uh, heir to your actions. Your happiness and suffering depend on your actions. Uh, not on my wishes for you. It's kind of somber. You know, we can wish well all day, and it doesn't mean there's going to be a happy ending or a not happy ending, because everyone, in the end, uh, has a certain degree of responsibility, which is largely based on intention, for how things unfold. And then it gets, of course, much more complex, because it's us. The way my life unfolds is not just how I respond to each moment. It's how everybody I know and everyone in the world responds to each moment. It's very complex. So it's not that we're solely responsible in any way. Uh, I'll share with you the phrases that I've been using that I think kind of reveal this in a general way more clearly than the traditional ones. They came out of a period of practice and study. Uh, I lived in... Asia for seven months in 2010, and really meeting the devotion and the beauty of the cultures I was living in and the just unspeakable suffering. And so some new equanimity phrases arose, which were, I have my path, you have your path, and I care about you. And that's really at the heart of it. Each one of us has our own path. And we care. I have my path. You have your path. And I care about you. And then, of course, when I came home, I discovered it worked great with my partner and my family and everyone I work with. And I'm like, oh, I think those are winners for me. I just walk around saying them all the time. Whenever I notice myself caught up in reactivity that could so easily, you know, kind of grow into a series of judgments that I might believe, ah, what's going on here? It's that I have my path, and you have your path, and I care about you. And the way that it's about to manifest is that I'm trying to run your life for you, either in my own mind or externally, which is not equanimity. (laughs) 
So, I have my path, you have your path, and I care about you. Another way of looking at equanimity practice, I was thinking about the practice that we're doing of starting to examine core beliefs or limiting beliefs and the suggestion to turn them around. So we come up with a core belief. You know, the ultimate core belief that used to run my whole life was real simple and real pervasive. And it goes like this. I'm not good enough. I used to run my whole life. And so to turn it around produces that balance of equanimity uh, and depersonalizes it a little bit more so that we might live in a different way. And I first got this practice of, um, of turning it around. And sometimes turning it around is internal, sometimes it's external. Sometimes turning it around is seeing things from other people's perspectives so that we judge less and get confused less. And I first had this insight actually when I was eight years old. Um, and I was a really sensitive kid. And uh, so, you know, being a sensitive kid, sometimes what other kids do with sensitive kids is they make fun of them. If I hadn't been a sensitive kid, they would have made fun of me for something else. You know what I mean? It's just kind of part of kidness, unfortunately. But they're giving me a hard time again. And I had the thought, you know, they're being mean to me because they're hurting. And I just knew it was true. I just knew it was true. So much later, I heard that adage, uh, which goes, hurt people hurt people. Healed people heal people. But at eight years old, I just, I got it. It was like, it's not about me. They're doing this to me because they're hurting. And the real view of equanimity to hold that, uh, it didn't mean that I didn't tell them to stop it. It didn't mean that I didn't walk away. It didn't mean that I didn't sometimes feel bad about myself. But it's just that wisdom quality that can hold more than the immediate lens of the picture. Another kind of quality of equanimity. So I think I'll just close with a quote that I found recently from Father Thomas Keating. He said, If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone. That's really the invitation. It's like we start with wishing well or compassion or this or that to ourselves. And then we have these categories, this one, this one, this one. Uh, And for the purpose of uh, training and moving through a process that supports our awakening, it's really helpful. You know, and to include the personal in that is really helpful. And then at some point, the personal and the universal lenses start to merge. And it's less about the personal in the foreground, and it's more about, ah, me and us together in one lens. If one completes the journey to one's own heart, one will find oneself in the heart of everyone.
So that is what I have to offer for our reflection this evening. And I thank you so much for the kindness of your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.